Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins as he speaks on the cross. Amen. Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, was standing there in Jerusalem, and he was preaching to thousands of Jews. He made a very bold statement. I want to show you what Peter said to the thousands of Jews. This is, again, just seven weeks after the crucifixion of Christ. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, get this, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Just about seven weeks after the crucifixion of Christ, Peter said the words on the screen. Just about seven weeks after the Sanhedrin, that 71-member Supreme Court of Israel, with lawless hands, took Jesus of Nazareth and condemned him and turned him over to a corrupt Roman governor named Pilate. Peter said those words. You see, Peter, while the wrongful death of Jesus was still ringing in everybody's ears while it was still the talk of the town, he wanted everybody to remember what had been done. And he publicly calls out the Sanhedrin. This took guts. The same guy who cowered before a servant girl on the courts of the high priest just seven weeks prior and denied Christ three times, well, after the resurrection and after Pentecost, the filling of the Holy Spirit, Peter now finally gets over his fear, and he stands before thousands of Jews. He calls out the Sanhedrin. He calls out the crowd that seven weeks earlier shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He calls them out publicly, and he tells them publicly that they were responsible for killing Jesus. But I have a question for you, and I'm going to ask this question over and over throughout this entire message. Was Jesus the helpless victim of the whims of evil men? Yes or no? The answer is no. Was Jesus the helpless victim of jealous religious leaders or a corrupt Roman governor or a hostile crowd? And of course the answer is no. Look again at the top of your screen. It says him, Jesus, being, here it is, delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. According to Peter's inspired words, Jesus was delivered up to death according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You see, before time began, God knew that the first man that he would create, Adam, would sin against him. And that all of us, Adam's offspring, all mankind, would follow in like manner. God also knew before time began that our sin, your sin, my sin, 
would lead us to death. It would lead to our physical death, but it would also lead to our spiritual death. What you gotta come to grips with, if you're new to the Bible, is that you, yes, you have a body. The body's getting older because the earth is under a curse. And as a result of Adam's sin and our sin, our bodies are aging. No matter how often you go to the gym, no matter how many sit-ups that you do, right, you cannot stop your body from getting older. And one day, I'm here to proclaim some good news to you, you will die, all right? Physically, you will die. But you also have an immortal part of you, inside of you, it's your soul. And your soul will live in one of two places forever and ever. Your body may be cremated and put into the ground or put into a casket and put into the ground, but your soul will live on forever. And God knew before he created the world that our sin would lead to our physical death and to our spiritual death. Spiritual death is simply separation from God forever. But because of God's great love for us, he devised a sovereign plan to save us. Before time began in the eternal councils of the Trinity, God devised a plan to rescue us from sin and death. So what was the plan? The plan was that the second person of the Trinity, you heard Bellarive playing it while we were receiving the offering for the Lord. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ his son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. And so in the eternal counsels of the Trinity before time began, here was the plan. The plan was that the second person of the Trinity, God's eternal, uncreated, one and only son, would leave heaven. He would come to our sin-sick, fallen world. He would allow himself to be born of a virgin. He would take on human flesh. It's called the incarnation. He would live a perfect life. And then he would allow sinful men with lawless hands to crucify him to a Roman cross. You see, Jesus was not the helpless victim of the whims of evil people. No, Jesus was born, he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose again, all according to God's eternal sovereign plan for you and for me. And we ought to thank him for that, that he's in control of all things. Now, I'm burdened for some of you because you do not yet know the scriptures. And when your friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers who are not Christians look down on you and ridicule you and wonder how in the world you could believe in Christianity or a man named Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago and then you respond well you just got to take it by faith brother or sister okay I understand that okay but that's kind of a lame answer it is true that we have to take this thing by faith but you also should get to know the scriptures so that you can prove, it's called apologetics, the defense of the faith, so that you can prove to your doubting friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members that what we believe is a fact of history. And all this stuff that we talk about concerning Jesus is a fact, and one of the ways, just one of the ways that you can prove that is through fulfilled prophecies. 
in your Old Testament called the Hebrew Scriptures. There are hundreds of ancient prophecies that were given concerning the Messiah's birth and life, suffering, and yes, even his death, and yes, even his resurrection, and yes, even his ascension, given hundreds of years before it actually happened. So during this shorter message than usual, I'm going to keep referring back to those ancient prophecies to remind all of us that our God is great, our God is sovereign, and our God was in complete control of everything that happened to his son on the day that he suffered and died. So after Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, something brutal took place. Mark talks about it. It says, so Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd. So he released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus. And after he had, what's the next two words? Scourged him to be crucified. Pilate had Jesus publicly scourged or whipped. The instrument of torture was called the flagellum. The instrument of torture, the whip that the Roman soldiers would use, was called a flagellum, nicknamed the cat of nine tails. It was simply a leather whip made up of nine leather strands, and inside of the strands was interwoven pieces of metal, pieces of bone. What they did to Jesus was savage. Perhaps you've seen the Passion of the Christ. Perhaps it's been 10, 11 years since you've seen the Passion of Christ. I would encourage you, especially Holy Week is coming up, I would encourage you to put it back on and to watch it, as painful as it is to watch it. And remember what happened. What they did to Jesus was horrible, was savage. They tied his hands to a post, exposing his bare back to that Roman soldier with a flagellum. And that Roman soldier thrashed the back of Jesus 39 times. As the beating continued, the bone and the metal interwoven into the, the leather strands began to tear pieces of raw flesh from our Savior's back. And by the time they were done, Jesus' back looked like raw hamburger meat. But I ask once again, was Jesus the helpless victim of the whims of evil men? Yes or no? No, check out this ancient prophecy in Isaiah. We're going all the way back to 8th century B.C. Over 700 years before Christ lived on the earth. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his what? We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. Again, 8th century B.C., before Christ. Over 700 years before it happened, Isaiah wrote of the brutal chastisement of the suffering servant. Of course, we know the suffering servant there in Isaiah 52 and 53 is the Messiah, it's prophecies concerning the Messiah. And thank God, by his stripes, we are healed and we will be healed. What you gotta understand is that Jesus suffered so you and I would not have to suffer eternally. 
What you and I have to understand is that Jesus died so that you and I would not have to die eternally. And death, again, does not mean to cease to exist. Death means separation. When you die, it means not that you cease to exist, it means that your soul is separated from your body. And to die forever means that your soul is separated from the God who created it forever and ever. But Jesus suffered so we would not have to be separated from our Lord. I never forget when I was in my 20s back in Tampa, my friend and I were, were driving down a certain road there in Riverview, Florida. And there was some heavy traffic in front of us. And so my friend who was driving began to slow down to break for the traffic that was building up in front of us. And all of a sudden he said, hold on, Mike. We braced and right then, a guy slammed into the back of us. He was probably going 40, 45 miles an hour. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. But I'll never forget what the guy's shirt said as he got out of his car and he walked up to my friend and I to talk about the accident. It said, Jesus died for his own sins, not mine. Man, I so wanted to fake an injury and just like take that guy for every penny he had. I didn't do that, by the way. Jesus died for his own sins, not mine? I mean, why don't you just spit on God who gave his life so you could live forever? Obviously, that guy didn't believe the Bible. Obviously, obviously, that guy had never read the New Testament because over and over and over again, the Bible teaches that Jesus never sinned, that he was the perfect lamb of God. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot. He knew no sin. And so the truth is, Jesus did not die and suffer for his own sins. He died because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that's the Father, has laid on him, that's the Son, the iniquity or the sin of us all. If you're new to the Bible, you have to come to grips with the fact that God has two natures. Is he a God of love? Yes. But he's also a God of holiness and righteousness and justice. And it says in Galatians chapter 6, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And so what we should have reaped because we have sown so much sin in our lives is death. But Jesus says, I'll come and reap the consequences of their sins. And so when you think about the holy nature of God, God's holy nature says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the loving nature of God comes around and he says, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, leans on him, trusts in him, will not perish, all right? Will not die physically or spiritually, will not perish, but have everlasting life. The holy nature of God says sin has to be paid for. But the loving nature of God says, I will send my one and only son and he'll make the payment on behalf of the world. After the soldiers scourged Jesus, 
they decided they wanted to have some more fun. This is Communion Sunday. Jesus asked us to remember. Let's remember. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. So I want you to picture in your mind's eye a bunch of Roman soldiers, bloodthirsty, corrupt, perverted soldiers surrounding Jesus like a pack of wolves surrounding a lamb. And they stripped him, okay? They had just opened up his back. The clothes that he had on were acting as bandages to stop the bleeding. And now they ripped those bandages off. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Of course, this is because they wanted to mock him, scarlet being the color of kings. It says when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. Can you see it in your mind's eye? And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. They were beating down the crown of thorns deeper into his skull. And when they had mocked him, they put the robe off him. And so now they're tearing off the robe that was acting as a bandage. And they put his own clothes on him. It doesn't say Jesus clothed himself. He was too weak. They put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. Why? Because he's in love with you. Why would God go through such brutality? Because he's in love with you. You say, Pastor Mike, that's just disturbing, that verse. Yes, but he asked us to remember. We are to remember his broken body. We are to remember his shed blood. Look at verse 33 now of Luke 23. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, by the way, I, I love the name of our church. Sometimes, you know, people who are new to the Bible or don't know anything about Christianity, they think I'm saying I'm the pastor of Cavalry, like C-A-V, and that's the way they'll write it. No, 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 it's C-A-L. You know, not, not, dun, 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 dun. it's not Cavalry, it's Calvary. And it's an opportunity to witness, by the way. My hope is every time people drive up and down St. James Boulevard and they see Calvary, that they'll remember the sacrifice of Jesus. So when they had come to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, what's the next two words? Forgive them. Now I want you to think about that person who offended you this past week or this past month. That person that you're still bitter and angry at. That person that you have not forgiven yet. And you may be talking about that person behind their back. You're holding a grudge. And I want to ask you, did that, did that person, you know, like open up your back with a flagellum? They spit in your face? They put a crown of thorns on your head? No, of course not. And so, hey, if Jesus can forgive, we can forgive. And here's a real good motivation to forgive. 
Jesus said, if you will not forgive men their trespasses against you, neither will my Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Here's a good motivation to forgive that person who offended you. You want God to forgive you? You gotta forgive. Let it go. Let it go. The only person you're hurting is yourself. As you harbor that bitterness and that anger inside of you, you're not hurting them. They probably forgot about it by now. But you are hurting yourself by continuing to rehearse it and nurse it and curse it. Let it go. Forgive them. Do something nice for them. Pray for them. And so he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided, at the end of verse 34, his garments and cast lots. It says in verse 33, they crucified Jesus at the place called Calvary. It literally means the place of the skull. Golgotha in the Hebrew, Calvary in the Greek. If you ever go with us to Israel, we're going in two years, March of 2017, we go to Calvary, to the place that we believe where Jesus was crucified. And right there um, in the side of the hill, you see the skull, Skull Hill. Now the soldiers were used to their, their criminals that they were crucifying to fight back. And so it would take a bunch of them, you know, to push the guy down on the wood and to hold the guy's arm down as they would nail the hands and the feet. And the Romans crucified thousands of people. They would crucify thousands of people and line up the crosses on the roads as people would travel so that they would see all these thousands of people crucified and they would know, don't ever defy Rome. How surprised were were those soldiers when Jesus just laid down on the wood? How surprised were those soldiers when Jesus just opened up his hands for them to nail his wrists into the horizontal beam? It wasn't like they were pushing his arms down and Jesus says, no, 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 not at all. Who was in control of the whole thing? God was. God asks, Or we ask the Lord, how much do you love me, Lord? This much? And what did they do at that point? They drove six to eight inch spikes into his wrists on the horizontal beam. And then they drove one large spike into both of his feet on that vertical beam. And I'm going to ask it again. Was Jesus the helpless victim of the whims of evil men? Yes or no? No. How do you know that? Check out this ancient prophecy. Tenth century B.C. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Do you see the detailed precision of prophecy? fulfilled literally in the passion of the Christ. How in the world can you believe in this fairy tale of Christianity? How in the world can you put your trust in some religious guy 2,000 years ago that the Romans crucified? Well, here's one reason. Because hundreds of years before it actually happened, holy men of God wrote about it in detail. And then it came true in history. You cannot explain that. 
The only way to explain that is that this book is God's word and Jesus Christ really is the Messiah, the Lord of all. So a thousand years before it happened, the scriptures predict the piercing of the hands and feet of the Messiah, the dividing of his garments. And crucifixion was a horrible way to die. One of my favorite Bible commentators, David Guzik, he's a, a Calvary Chapel pastor, fellow Calvary Chapel pastor in Santa Barbara, California. By the way, all his commentaries are on blueletterbible.com, so check them out. But concerning the crucifixion, he says, and I quote, the weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hindered exhalation. To get a good breath, the victim had to push against the feet and flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders. He goes on to say later, putting the weight of the body on the feet produced searing pain and each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. I want everybody to take a deep breath. Go ahead. And now exhale. And now stop right there and hold your breath. Now imagine the only way that you can take another breath if you're being crucified is you have to somehow push the weight of your body up on a single nail on a cross in order to breathe in. Go ahead and breathe in, because I don't want anyone to pass out this morning. Okay, breathe in, breathe, breathe, all right. Can you picture the scene? The eternal Son of God hanging half naked on a Roman cross in between two criminals. And he has to agonize for every breath that he takes. Why would he do that? So you could be and I could be forgiven. Sin had to be paid for. By the way, do you see how serious sin is? Sometimes we're flippant about sin. Sometimes we presumptuously think, oh, God will forgive me, therefore I'm going to go ahead and make a choice to commit this sin. Well, before you make a choice to commit any sin, I want you to realize what sin did to the Son of God and realize that it is so serious that God had to give his life's blood to forgive that sin. And maybe if you'll think about the cross before you choose to sin, maybe, just maybe, by God's grace and power, you'll make another choice. Look at verse 35. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And so in addition to being scourged, in addition to being nailed to the wood of a tree, in addition to having a crown of thorns crammed down into his head, Jesus has also had to endure the, the sneering, the jeering, the ridicule of the crowd. Now, sometimes we mistakenly think of Calvary as 
you know, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And we think that Jesus was way up on this hill, far above everybody, and that when they crucified him and put him up on the cross, he was way up high. So we're way down here as spectators looking up at him way up there. It has nothing to do with the truth. Jesus was not crucified on a hill, hill, far, far, far away. No, he was crucified, according to Hebrews, right outside the city gates in a major traffic thoroughfare. And he was crucified a lot lower to the ground than you and I have been led to believe. And that is because history tells us of the account of other people who were crucified and they had their legs eaten off by wild dogs. The only way you can have your legs eaten by wild dogs is if you're lower to the ground. And so don't think of Jesus way, 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 way up high. No, he's on a major thoroughfare, and he's probably just above eye level. And in that scene, there's a huge crowd, and they hate him. They're sneering, they're jeering, they're ridiculing, they're spitting, they're taunting him to come down off the cross. And I'm going to ask it again. Was Jesus the helpless victim of the whims of evil men? Yes or no? Check out this ancient prophecy. 10th century BC. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. Saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Over a thousand years before it actually occurred, the scriptures prophesy even that detail of the jeering of the crowd. Look now at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. Okay, you see that? In verse 41, that's what you call confessing your sin, admitting that you're a sinner. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. In other words, we're thieves. We deserve to die. But this man has done nothing wrong. Okay, just the opposite of the guy's shirt that ran into me back in the 20s. No, this guy, this repentant robber, admits that he's a sinner, and he admits that Jesus has never sinned. And then he says to Jesus in verse 42, Lord, okay, the other guy who was not repentant said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But now this repentant robber is calling Jesus Lord. In other words, he's confessing Jesus publicly as the Christ. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your, what does it say? Kingdom. He believes he's the Christ. He believes he has a kingdom. He believes he's the king. This is what you call turning to Christ in faith. This is saving faith. It's humility. It's admittance that you're a sinner. It's admittance that Jesus is Lord and it's turning to him because you can't save yourself. So how does Jesus answer this guy in verse 43? He says, assuredly, I say to you, today, there is no soul sleep, ladies and gentlemen. You don't go into a grave and then sleep for a long, long time until the resurrection. 
Absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. He says, today you will be with me in where? Paradise. The robber, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you imagine if Jesus would have said, you know, sorry, bud, you're just not good enough. You're a thief for crying out loud. Why don't you try to clean up your act before you come to me? And you know, you have to be baptized in order to be saved, but because you're pinned to that cross, I guess you're out of luck. Is that what Jesus said to this guy? No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was a sinner, he was a robber, he was an evil guy. And guess what, I'm an evil guy. And guess what, you guys are all evil. You say, how dare you say that? Well, that's what you have to admit in order to be saved because the good news is not good news until you preach the bad news. And the bad news is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are not basically good, we're basically bad. And we so desperately need a savior. But some of you are too proud to open up your hearts and humble yourself and admit that you are a sinner, that you are evil. And you need a savior to wash away all your sins. You cannot save yourself, ladies and gentlemen. You need Jesus. He's your only hope. He's my only hope. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, now it was the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when usually the sun is blazing and the day is bright, darkness covers the whole earth. You think something divine is happening right now? The sun was darkened, verse 45. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Supernaturally, nobody's pulling on it. It just rips, top to bottom. And when Jesus has cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. At 9 a.m., they nailed him to the wood of the cross. At 12 p.m., darkness covers the whole land. And at 3 p.m., he breathed his last. And it's the last time I'm going to ask you this question. Was Jesus the helpless victim of the whims of evil men? Check out this final prophecy. Eighth century B.C., yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Now, I'm going to read that again to you, if you're looking at the screen, and explain it. Yet it pleased the Lord, that's the Father in heaven, to bruise him, that's the Son. He, the Father, has put him, the Son, to grief. When you, the Father, make his soul, the soul, the Son, an offering for sin, he, the Father, shall see the labor of his Son's soul and be, what's the last word? Satisfied. 700 years before it happened, the scriptures predicted that the Messiah's soul would be, a, be made an offering for our sins. And the Father would see the labor of his son's soul and be satisfied. All right, 12 o'clock, high noon, the sun is darkened. Darkness covers the whole land from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. 
I believe during those three hours is when the heavenly father was taking your sin and my sin, the sin of the entire world from Adam all the way to the last person who, who will be born in the future. And he took that sin and he poured it on his son and he poured his wrath. You remember two natures, God is holy, God is loving. Okay, here's the holiness of God, the justice of God being satisfied. He poured his wrath against sin on his son. And it's no wonder in Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus from the cross quotes it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father turned away from the son. The son was separated from the father. What was he doing? He was enduring hell for you and I. So we never have to go there. That's what you call love. That's Christ's love for you and I. He suffered. God saw the labor of his son's soul. Jesus cries, it is finished. To tell us die, paid in full. And it says that God looked at that. He saw the labor of his son's soul and he satisfied. It's called propitiation. That means that God's wrath has been appeased forever. And now you and I never have to worry about being condemned because Jesus paid it all, it all, all of it. If he is your hero, if Jesus is your hero, if you love him with all your heart, if he's the most important person in your life, and if you believe that he deserves worship and praise, I want you right now to stand to your feet, clap your hands, shout out loud, thank the Lord, give glory to God because he is worthy. Right now, he's in heaven looking down at you. Give him praise. Worship him. Lift up your hands. Worship our king. Thank him for what he's done. He paid it all, folks. He paid it all. All of it. You don't have to worry about being condemned ever again. He paid it all. He paid it all. We praise you, God. We thank you, Lord. We bless you, God. You are our hero. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.